Hello, what is up, and welcome to Off the Books, where we're surfing the uncharted waters of accounting, of finance, and wherever else those waves take us. This episode is brought to you by Workiva, the risk reporting and compliance platform that simplifies complex work. They take complicated concepts and ideas and make them understandable to all, not unlike what we do here on Off the Books. Check it out at workiva.com slash podcast. I'm Drew Dubner, and I am your host. I am not an accountant, but I like asking questions of people who are so finance professionals can do their jobs better. And we have a spectacular show for you today. Ha ha, spec. We've got Steve Soder. We've got Nick Rinkowski. And we have the inimitable special guest, Nick Mazing of Centio. Steve, would you tell the fine folks at home who you are? Certainly happy to, Drew. And very, very excited for this discussion. My name is Steve Soder, accounting enthusiast and Diet Coke aficionado. I'm looking forward to debiting some briefs today. Not those kind of briefs, silly. Briefs on the market, which I don't know how big those briefs have to be to fit an entire market, but you know what I mean. How about you, Mr. Rinkowski? Well, I'm Nick Rinkowski, and uh, my heart has been described as an empty shell company. And so I am looking forward to writing a blank check for some knowledge today. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Nick Mazing. I'm the head of research at Centio. We are uh, proud to be a, a WorkIva partner. We help SEC reporting teams reduce risk with our uh, NOP, document search technology. I am working in the New York City office. Previously, I had worked both on the buy side and the sell side. I was an investment banker at Lima Brothers. On the corporate side, I work at Aramark. I'm also a podcast recidivist. This is my third time, but this time I'm not going to say anything new or interesting as a challenge to see if you invite me ever again. <laughs> challenge we'll probably still bring you back. <laughs> we love you. So, Nick, seasoned as you are, you seem to be always on top of the latest trends in the world of finance. And there's no bigger trend right now than SPACs. So right from the get-go, what's going on with SPACs? And why are they suddenly the biggest things since sliced bread? So when you look at SPACs, when you look at Bitcoin, when you look at collectibles, including the recently hot non-fungible tokens, retail day trader, it's all, it's all liquidity play, right? I think there is a lot of appetite for risk in the market. There is a lot of appetite for alternative assets. And SPACs are obviously probably the largest kind of dollar volume thing after Bitcoin that is relatively new. Now, SPACs are not new. SPACs have been around for a long time. So if you look back, Jamba Juice, when it was public, it was a SPAC deal. American Apparel, which went into liquidation, you, you know, may have seen their stores over the years. That was a SPAC Boulder Brands, which was a smart balance margarine. I don't know if you can say margarine anymore. It's vegetable oil spread. Big but butter. It, that, that was the, exactly big butter. These were all SPAC deals so, oh, 10 years ago. But right now, the boom really is there. We have had hundreds of SPACs already in the last few months. I think we... Are, we almost outraised 2019 already year to date. There is about something like 300 SPACs currently in the market looking for a deal and more skeptical than average. I think that just because there is SPACs looking for a deal doesn't mean there is good deals. I think we're going to see some, uh, on one hand, there's, there is obviously a certain negative selection. There isn't all of a sudden a lot more existing assets, better operating companies that should be public. But on the other hand, there's a lot of interesting things, almost venture capital type uh, SPAC deals that are already announced or have happened, such as space travel, Virgin Galactic. There is, in the last two weeks, I think there have been three air taxi deals announced, right? This is spectacularly, you know, kind of future tense, right? The cash flows are really out there. And, and I think if 10 years from now, when you look at the 
current generation of specs, I think there's going to be some total disasters, but also just because of the high variance of the businesses that are being backed, some of those could be really, really big. Yeah. It's hard not to approach any of that stuff in the future tense. I mean, Virgin Galactic, space travel, electric cars, it's all futuristic. Yeah, you've gone from fake butter and margarine to electric cars. I will say it must have been the SPAC flavoring that caused me to enjoy Smart Balance so much. So, Nick, on the SPAC topic, if there's one thing we know for sure, it's that whenever there's a boom of anything, regulation's not going to be far behind. I know SPACs have been around for a long time, but I doubt that it was envisioned that it would come to this. Do you think the SEC is going to clamp down on all this madness, particularly as we've got a change in leadership at the commission? Uh, yes, there is a little bit of a, call it a regulatory arbitrage, where in a traditional IPO, the company cannot give out projections. There could be a lot of hint, hint, wink, wink, research company so-and-so says that this market is going to grow at whatever rate, but they're not going to say, we expect our revenue to be whatever in the next three, four, five years. And with the SPACs, when you look at the PowerPoint decks, which is, I think, what most investors do, I don't think they read filings, uh, you know, they have like, oh, you know, the, the company is cheap on, you know, 2025 enterprise value to revenue basis, right? And, you know, I, th- I think eventually the the regulators may start applying a little bit more scrutiny there. And they've, and they've been pretty active. Like, for example, if you look at direct listings versus IPOs, right, you couldn't sell, that they, they were allowing secondary shares in direct listings and so on, right? That's something that they already did. And I think in, probably in the next year, we're going to see a little bit more, let's say, rule, uh, clarity from the SEC as to what they think about SPACs. Banks can't be pleased about this, or maybe they are. I mean, whoever is invested in IPOs can't be loving this threat to their supremacy. Um, are, will there be changes to way IPOs are delivered to make them more competitive compared to SPACs? Probably, because the uh, banks are underwriting SPACs. Some banks will say on their confidence calls, oh, we're very selective regarding the sponsors. There are smaller banks where SPAC sponsors themselves, which is an interesting conflict of interest because they have underwriting and M&A advisory and SPAC ownership, which I think is uh, you always have to be careful. Are you a principal or are you an agent? But I think since we were in a kind of a unusual period, the SEC, where the Commissioner Jay Clayton resigned early ahead of his term, and we also had a lot of divisional heads. We may talk about this later. Uh, I think it's a situation where I don't want to say that nobody was mending the store, but I'm not not saying it either. That makes sense. We're having this conversation right now from many different locations because of COVID, and it seems to me that there's this also this peak in SPACs as well as this general peak in COVID. Are these two coincidental things? Do they have something to do with each other? Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I mean, COVID, COVID really uh, uh, changed a lot of things. And I think from a financial reporting perspective, we saw a lot of interesting things happening. We saw a lot of, for example, I covered consumers, so I stay on top of that. We saw a lot of brand impairments. So Steve, if you have a pair of Calvin Klein jeans, you can't wear them anymore. They're impaired. So Calvin Klein was impaired. That was like a $600 million write-down. Tommy Hilfiger, Jessica Simpson, Martha Stewart, Jay Jill, a lot of those household names, actually, they did get impaired during COVID. We are all working from home and all that. We're in the Zoom demographic. We're fortunate. Only about those, I saw the statistics in parents, only about 25% of the workforce actually can work on Zoom. But yeah, that's, I, th- I think impairments are very interesting. 
Yeah. Hey, look, as long as Diet Coke and Crocs are not impaired, I'm good. And maybe sweats. I don't know. That does bring up what other things are looking suspect because of this? What should we be looking out for that could become impaired? I, I, I may get in trouble here. I'm not mm. a CPA. But if you ask me, uh, Gateway City Office Real Estate is prime suspect. Because when you look at and when you, when you look at what the REITs have been doing, a lot of retail is already written down, right? And let's say there is a, a major diversified REIT that too, they took a write down on the receivables that they had for the for from a bankrupt retail that was a major tenant, and they wrote down the value of the property. I think Gateway City Office Real Estate is impaired. Like regarding how the accounting is handled, I don't know, but when you look at like price to book, the, the way some of those stocks are trading, right, it's a sign of a permanent impairment. And there is a lot of rules regarding that. And I think Steve can shine some light on that. I, I just play an expert on podcasts. I'm not an actual expert in real life <laughs> or anything. But when you look at, let's say, swipe card data, New York City subway, right? This is down 60 to 70%, and it has been down like this for a while. And then when you look at anything from occupancy rates, now the REITs, when they report occupancy, it actually report like rent collections, which are still in the 90s. But all those contracts are rolling over. So rather than looking at occupancy, they, they've started disclosing what they call a census or utilization rates. And when you look at them globally, really the United States is, most markets is around 20%. Atlantic Canada which has been kind of hermetically sealed. They've done a very good job controlling the virus. Office occupancy in Atlantic Canada is 40 to 50%. Australia, which is another country that has done a very good job, office occupancy there, I should say utilization, not occupancy, is, is around 50 to 60%, right? Which to me, especially given the, the widespread adoption, now we have the technology, this has happened 20 years ago, it, it wouldn't be happening. Uh, I think demand for office space and what we're seeing companies discussing on conference calls, like office footprint is one of the questions, right? Because it seems like a low hanging fruit for users, which means that it's possible impairments if you, yeah. you know, if, 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 if you look at that. That's crazy. I hadn't heard that before. So in Australia, office utilization, again, is 50 to 60%, but things are pretty well open there. Do you think that's like a harbinger of something to anticipate over here? I, I don't know if we'll have a great reopening ceremony, right? I think I think the summer will be crazy. But there's going to be champagne cruises in the Hudson and, and all that. I think people are starved for travel and other activities. And it's funny because we were, we were just looking at, at, at what's been going on in transcripts and, and pent-up demand in the last few months has skyrocketed. Like pretty much any travel airline, hotel CEO talks about pent-up demand. Hey, Nick, it dawned on me I did not give you an opportunity to talk about Sentio. Every time you've come into the show, you've worn a Sentio sweatshirt. First and for foremost, I want to know where I can get one of those. You may need to talk to our marketing department. I think they're controlled very tightly since it's such a <laughs> valuable asset. Uh, but, you know, uh, Sentio, if you, since you... Uh, wanted to know a little bit more. We are a research platform. We serve the both the buy side and the corporate market on the corporate side. We do focus on uh, HCC reporting teams, FP&A, and investor relations. The teams really use our uh, search technology where it really helps users search across uh, filings, press release, and other documents, including internal documents, using some of our advanced first search features, such as synonym search, section search like in 10k risk factors we have redlining at various types classic redlining or blacklining we have uh, redlining heat maps where you can just see all the sections in the findings to see where the changes are before we even start the actual redlining 
So, Nick, uh, I want to get into some early proxy season things that we're seeing. You've got some big companies, Apple, Disney, Starbucks. They don't have a fiscal year end that coincides with calendar year end. So we're starting to see some interesting things emerge there in their latest proxies. It, tell us, what did they do? Will others follow? And, and what would you call out there? I think it's going to be a very interesting proxy season. <laughs> I know it sounds uh, probably for non-necessary reporting listeners, <laughs> it, it sounds a little bit strange. You know, proxies are annual documents that describe executive compensation and it's essentially what the shareholders vote on, you know, new board of directors, nominees, and so on, executive comp targets and, and, and things like that. I think when you read the early proxies, and you know, I'm going to highlight Starbucks because they have really been at the forefront as, as a company on a number of social issues. The level of disclosures regarding ESG topics has gone up quite a bit. Not only has the disclosures gone up, they're actually now paying their executives for certain diversity and inclusion goals. You know that the incentives are being aligned to address the issues that we're really front and center for a lot of 2020 besides COVID. And in terms of disclosures, Starbucks is showing not just a racial, ethnic, and gender breakdown of their workforce, but they're showing it across levels. So in other words, entry-level employees, management, and manufacturing, which I, I, I think is very interesting. And they, in 2021, uh, their fiscal 2021, they introduced specific targets uh, for long-term representation at the higher levels for the management teams. You're also seeing, if you look at Disney, if you look at Netflix, they're not that specific, but one thing that they have started doing is they're very clearly displaying the board of directors breakdown in terms of gender, race, and ethnicity. Some other companies are also including nationality, especially in the large multinationals. So I think we're, we're starting to see a lot more uh, uh, ESG type disclosures, not just statistics, but also initiatives. So the other topic that we wanted to touch on that seems to be on the minds of just about everyone who has ever looked at anything financial is GameStop. So the GameStop roller toaster. Roller toaster. A roller toaster, and upon which you spread smart balance fake butter. Hey, I used to love that stuff. Seriously. Well, you know, you know they have these conveyor belt toasters, so I'm, I'm assuming that's what you meant. Yeah, there you go. That's precisely what I meant. The GameStop roller coaster, but GameStop hasn't exactly stopped. It seems to be slowing down a little bit, but then picking back up again. I'm curious what your take is on the fallout of everything to do with GameStop. I don't think we've seen the end of it. If I have to break down what, what I think will happen in a few buckets is, number one, uh, as far as SEC reporting teams and, and corporate finance professionals are concerned, be ready to talk to your lawyers, talk to your bankers. I'm not giving advice here, but be ready to be opportunistic the way AMC had a at the market issuing programs, and they were able to reequitize their business. Obviously, AMC, a movie theater chain, they got hit very hard by COVID. They had some debt, but they were able to issue stock. And it was almost like if you have read uh, George Soros and, and his concept of reflexivity, the fundamentals affect the stock price or the markets, but also the markets affect the fundamentals. This was exactly that, that second part. They were able to issue stock and de-risk their company because they paid off their debt. I think we're going to see uh, a lot more scrutiny on the payment for order flow, which enables the so-called free trading. Nothing is free. <laughs> Everybody <Yeah>. should know this. <laughs> it's not just payment for order flow that goes on in the background. There is also, if you look at in a margin account, there is obviously the lending and all that. I think that will be have to be disclosed more closely. And if you look at the uh, share lending market, how the shares actually 
end up being sold short and who keeps the money from the interest that that's a loan that's an asset loan and the free trading brokerages keep the money like Robinhood. I'm not going to mention any names, but they keep oh. the money. On the other hand, I, I use interactive brokers and every day I get a statement of whether one, they lent any of my shares out and how much money I made on that because they split the interest that they collect from the people who borrow the shares from me. There, there's going to be a lot of a lot of changes and obviously we had congressional hearings and so on, but the retail participation whether people should be maxing out their 401ks and IRAs before they start speculating on, you know, with the online trading apps. I think that, that they'll figure out a way to encourage that. I personally am taking all my GME money and putting it into little gifts that are NFTs. That seems to be a pretty stable currency right now. Nick, you brought up AMC. What essentially is the difference between what happened with AMC and what has happened and continues to happen with GameStop? The big difference is that AMC was, I don't know if they were already ahead of them, but they did have an existing equity issuance program that they were able to utilize to issue stock. GameStop did not issue any stock during this craziness. I think the the big takeaway there is be ready. The other thing that happened, which a lot of people probably don't know, is that there was a very large number of other companies that were also affected by this move because a number of hedge funds had positions in the same stocks, which we could call it crowding or, or whatever you want to call it. So you had some sleepy stocks like Tootsie Row Industries going up 40, 50%. You had BNG Foods. They make like BNM baked beans and maple syrup and canned food. You had Cheesecake Factory. You had Shake Shack, not Domino's Pizza, but Papa John's, I think, was also one of those affected stocks that really went up and then came down. I find it all fascinating and now I find it all slightly making me hungry because <laughs> there's some good food there. So, Nick, we can't leave you without getting a Bitcoin update. We're wondering, what's your hot take on all the Bitcoin madness? Obviously, Tesla and Elon Musk made a pretty substantial bet. Curious where you see that going. I'm going to get all the hate mail, but it's not a suitable treasury asset, if you ask me. It's too volatile. I don't think it makes sense from a corporate finance perspective because – if you know your shareholders own your stock because they want exposure to X, Brazilian refineries, Chinese middle class, reopening, whatever it is. When you buy Bitcoin in size, which is what happened with a couple of companies, you're in, A, your investors can do that anyway if they want to, and you're introducing a level of volatility that I don't think it's suitable. I think the accounting around it is a headache and it may i don't know if it may end up being like those beverage company very well known that in when i feel steve if you remember the uh, big wave of venezuela deconsolidations I, I looked it up before our call and they had cash trapped in their venezuelan subsidiary and on page 75 in their 2015 10k they had a line item called reduction of cash 569 million dollars and I think that's sort of the volatility that it's another face of it. Bottom line, I don't think it's a suitable treasury asset. Your investors can buy it on their own. So note to Drew and Steve, time to liquidate all off the books Bitcoin positions. Ah, <laughs> boy, I got my work cut out for me right after this. Uh, yes, yes, you do. And that kind of brings us to 
the closing question of the day. We were talking about GameStop and AMC theaters a minute ago. And while the role of public consumption of movies may be changing, we're watching a lot more Netflix, we can all agree that a movie is best on a big screen. What is one movie that you've never seen in a theater that you wish you could? Steve. So I am not ashamed to say I have never seen the movie Top Gun, not the sequel that's coming out, the original. So I suppose if I was going to go see a movie I've never seen before, I would have to say Top Gun. And maybe I could just sit right there in that very theater chair and go straight into the sequel. Who knows? Watch them both. Compare them. Exactly. I love going to movies. I like seeing old movies in theaters. I've been very pleased to see, like, Lawrence of Arabia, you kind of need to see in a theater anyway. So it's usually better for those big epic types. But I've never seen The Godfather in a, in a movie theater, and I think that's I would like that. I'm going to be the odd one out. We don't own a TV, and I don't watch movies. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I saw a movie. Uh, we don't have Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus or any of that, so I actually do not know. That's why you seem that. so well-rounded and focused on, on things that matter. This mystical persona of Nick Mazing now just got way more complicated. <laughs> it's it's true, though. Like, I've never known a TV. <laughs> I'm with Nick. I think I'm so far behind in movies as... Hardcore off-the-books listeners will know that I have not seen a Star Wars movie. So, uh, you know, if I'm going to be forced to watch a movie, I'll, I'll do that whole thing all in a movie theater. Just lock me in there for a few hours and I'll knock them all out. Why not? What else Love have it. we had anything to do? Love it. And then let's go have those memes conversations one more time, Drew. That'll right. be even more interesting. <laughs> I'm Drew Dubner. This has been Off the Books. Please subscribe, leave an Apple podcast review, which really, really helps us, or tell your buddies if you like the show. Hey, if you want to be on the show, if you want to tell us nice things, write us at Off the Books, all one word, at Workiva, that's W-O-R-K-I-V-A dot com. Surf's up, and we'll see you on the next wave. Look, we, we definitely futzed about for at least seven or eight minutes, so. Yeah. There's a little bit of futzing. There's some, there's some futz to cut. But <laughs> cutting the foots <laughs> this summer. <laughs> There's your outtake. Right. <laughs> it's been oh, behind, behind the scenes. It's the, it's the friend and family reel. <laughs> I love it. I love it.